Psalm 2 is a royal psalm that is both prophetic and messianic. Psalm 2 prophesies of the nations of the earth in revolt against God. And it's also messianic because it reveals the king himself, the anointed one, the begotten son of God, Jesus Christ. Paul quoted Psalm 2 verse 7 when preaching about Jesus' resurrection at the synagogue in Pisidian, Antioch. He quoted the same verse in Hebrews 1.5 to show that Jesus, as the Son of God, is above angels. John reveals in the book of Revelation that Psalm 2 is fulfilled eschatologically in Christ's final triumph. And while no author is named, David without a doubt is the author of this psalm as Peter ascribes authorship to him in Acts chapter 4, verse 25 to 26. If Psalm 1 is about the blessed man, then Psalm 2 is about the rebellious man. In many ways, Psalm 1 and 2 parallel Genesis 1 through 4. In Genesis 1 and 2, Adam was the blessed man. Beginning in Genesis 3, Adam became the rebellious man. And in Genesis 4, Cain continues the rebellion and went out from God. Now as we come to Psalm 2, the descendants of Adam are in full and open rebellion against God. But God has the final word. And so in Psalm 2, we see man's rebellion and God's final word. Psalm 2 is an exhortation to humankind to abandon the rebellious plans against the Lord and His anointed King and to submit to the authority of the Son of God, whom He has ordained to rule the nations with a rod of iron. We're going to begin in Psalm chapter 2 and verses 1 and 3 with the nation's conspiracy. The nation's conspiracy. Why are the nations in an uproar, and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart, and cast away their cords from us. David begins with the question, Why are the nations in an uproar? Why are the people devising a vain thing? You know, throughout the Psalms, we are pummeled by honest questions. And here we're asked, why are the nations in an uproar? Why are people devising vain things? And we can ask this question. If God is the sovereign Lord of history, why this rebellion? If God is a God of order, why all this chaos? Here the nations are seething in revolt. Literally, they're in an uproar or a rage. And they're plotting or devising things with no substance. Well, the question of why they uproar is not immediately answered, but is in instead intensified by a parallel statement in verse 2, as the subject changes from the nations to their leaders. One only has to look at the leaders of the nations to know why the nations or the peoples of those nations are doing what they're doing. See, rather than squelching the upheaval, the rulers take counsel together and join in alliance against the Lord and against His anointed, which here, the word anointed, it's used also the same way in 1 Samuel 16, verse 1 to 13, means king. The Hebrew word is Mashiach, from which we get our word Messiah. And so when you hear the word Messiah or the anointed one, it actually means king. So when we say Jesus Christ, Christos is the Greek translation of 
Messiah or Messiah, which means king. So literally, every time in the New Testament you read Jesus Christ, you are reading Jesus the Anointed One or Jesus the King. The point of the nation's uproar and the rulers or the leaders' council becomes clear in verse 3. It's simply an open revolt. Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. So the question, why are the nations in uproar, now receives its answer. They no longer want to be submissive to God, to his king or his kingdom. They see submission to God as bondage and his sovereignty as restrictive and his will as demeaning. The nations, the people want autonomy. They want freedom. And in so doing, they are responding to the servants whispered Eve in the garden that they want to be like God. No, they want to be their own God. So from the nation's conspiracy, let's go to verses 4 through 6, and let's see God's critique. God's critique. Verse 4 through 6. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. God's response to the rebellion is twofold. In verse 4, he derides them for their foolishness. And in verses 5 and 6, he then directs them to his king on Zion. See, to begin with then, God sits and laughs at the nations. The fact that he is seated is a sign of his authority. He's the eternal one, the creator, the transcendent one, the king of kings and lord of lords, the lord of all things. You see, because he is all that he is, news from earth does not dismay him or make him nervous. God doesn't read the daily paper to keep current. Behold, the nations are as a drop in a bucket. All nations before him are as nothing, and they are counted by him less than nothing and worthless. It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. He brings the princes to nothing. He makes the judges of the earth useless. Isaiah 40, verse 15, 17, 22, and 23. You see, the presumption of the nations and their leaders causes God to laugh. How can those who are temporal fight the eternal? How can the creation fight its creator? And God laughs. As we face the terror of our history, God is laughing. And that ought to put things in perspective. It reminds us of the answer to the question, who's in charge? And ultimately, ecological disasters are not in charge. Nuclear nightmares are not in charge. Man's rebellion is not in charge. You know who's in charge? God. God laughs. And he's not laughing because he's aloof. He's laughing because he's offended at the absurd rebellion against his authority. And so responding in wrath in verse 5, he exercises his power by intervening in our history through his king whom he has installed on Zion. Verse 6. 
Which brings us now to verse 7 to 9 and the Messiah's charge. Verse 7 to 9, the Messiah's charge. Verse 7, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. In verse 7, the king, Jesus, the Messiah, witnesses to God's decree concerning himself, revealing his identity. And then in verses 8 and 9, the Messiah declares his destiny over this rebellious people. And Yahweh decrees two things about his king. First, the king is his son. And second, the king is begotten by him. Now in the Old Testament, the title son, my son, indicates intimate relationship and subordination. As son, the Messiah or king rules divinely and he rules being legitimized by his father. As son, he represents his father. His authority is mediated according to his father's authority. And at this point in the progress of Revelation, the phrase, you are my son, asserts the present relationship of unity. He's unified to the father, but in his position as son, he's subordinate to the father. Hebrews 1 later will reveal that the, the full meaning of this verse includes preexistence. Because when did the Father speak to the Son? In eternity past. Before the foundations of the world were established, He said, You are my Son. That means Christ existed as the eternal Son of God in eternity past. See, the Son is Son by nature as well as by decree and obedience. The decree then continues in verse 7, Today I have begotten you. While the Hebrew verb beget means to bear or to generate, the original intention of the word is, is unique because of the time element today. That excludes physical concepts of begetting. It's, he, he's using this, today I've begotten you, or today I have uh, bore you, to contrast his king with the Egyptian theories of kingship. Okay? The Egyptian theory of kingship passed from father to son through a lineage. And he's contrasting, well, my eternal son, who has no beginning or end, this is the day I've begotten him as king. This is the day I've appointed him as king. But there's also an eschatological emphasis because he says, Today his king is enthroned upon Mount Zion to rule the nations. And yet, from our perspective, that has yet to occur. Yet from God's perspective, it's already happened. Paul rightly proclaims that this promise of enthronement is now being fulfilled in the resurrection of God's Son from the dead. It is through his resurrection that Jesus is beginning to conquer all things. He first conquered death. He's received all authority. He's reigning and ruling, Matthew 28, 18 to 20. And there will come a day when he will return to this earth, set up his kingdom, and reign and rule over the nations. So while he is eternally God's son, 
He is declared Son of God in power by His resurrection from the dead, Romans 1.4. In this sense, the Son is begotten by the Father to be the second Adam, the firstborn from the dead, the progenitor of a whole new race of men and women who share in the resurrection life, 1 Corinthians 15.22-23. So the anointed king, the Messiah, sitting on Mount Zion is none other than the Son of God, mediating God's presence and bearing forth God's kingdom. That this kingdom or rule is effective is seen in verses 8 and 9. Notice first there is the what of his kingdom. The what of his kingdom is the nations and continents of this earth. His destiny is to rule the whole planet. I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth, the continents of the earth, for your possession. And second, there's the how. The how of his kingdom in verse 9. The nations will be broken with a rod of iron. They shall be shattered like a clay pot. His rule ultimately will be one of power and judgment. He will rule. And we need to take heed. See, while Christ comes now in this age of grace to rule in our hearts by his love, it will not always be so. Another day will dawn, and in the imagery of the book of Revelation, the conquering Lord will come on a white steed with the armies of heaven. Quote, now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. Revelation 19.15 And when that day comes, Psalm 2 verse 9 will be fulfilled. And so we close this psalm in verses 10 through 12 with David's counsel. After he's dealt with the nation's conspiracy and he showed us God's critique and he's given us the Messiah's charge, David now has some counsel. David's counsel, verse 10. Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son that he not become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all the, uh, those who take refuge in him. You see, the sober description of judgment in verses 8 to 9 leads to counsel in verses 10 to 12. The end has not yet come. It is as if the offer to the Messiah King, ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance has yet to be accepted. There is still time for the people and the rulers of the nations to be wise and receive, receive divine instruction before they are broken with a rod of iron. The kings and judges need to come to their only king and judge. They need to stop the rebellion. They need to submit to the king. And how they may answer this divine counsel of David is addressed in verses 11 and 12. The thesis is simple, worship the Lord. He says in verse 11, serve the Lord with fear. The word serve includes surrendering one's will and submitting one's heart. Do you serve the Lord with fear? Are you surrendering your will to His? Are you submitting your heart to Him? It means to come under His rule and obey Him. And it's interesting that when you study this word serve throughout the Old Testament, it's used in parallel with the verb worship. That's why in verse 11a in the NASB it reads, Worship the Lord with reverence. 
Serve the Lord with fear. Serving and worshiping are intertwined as at the same action. Look at the summons of Psalm 100 verse 2. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before His presence with singing. That worship also means submission is seen in Psalm 95 verse 6. Come let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. It can also be translated, come and let us serve Him and bow down. And the fear, this fear comes from a sense of awe before the numinous majesty, power, and holiness of God. Now worship also includes joy. In the second part of verse 11, he talks about rejoice with tremblings. Rejoice with trembling. You see, this joy comes from the very presence of God. As Psalm 1611 says, in your presence is fullness of joy. This is not a sentimental feeling. No, it's an action. Just like fear was manifested by an action of trembling, so joy manifests itself in an action. And it manifests itself with an attitude of submission to the Lord, with joy and awe in His presence. Which leads us to verse 12, the actual act of submission. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry. Kissing the Son is demonstrative of the act of worship. It is a concrete sign of surrender. It is getting down on your hands and knees and kissing His feet. And that's why the Greek word for worship, proskuneo, means to come forward, bow down, and kiss. We don't hear that too often today. Oh, it just means to bow down. No, it's more than that. You're bowing down at his feet and kissing his feet. That's utter humiliation. That's utter submission of your will to his. Well, I'm not going to kiss nobody's feet. Let me tell you something. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and tongue confess that he is Lord. Guess what? With that word bow, it's proskuneo. That means you're going to bow down and kiss his feet. To surrender to Christ, to rejoice in his presence, to kiss him are all acts of submission. It means that rebellion is over. And there is coming a day when all rebellion will be put down by him. Apart from this, there, there is only his anger, his wrath, and our perishing. If he does not ride into our hearts on a donkey, he will ride down our hearts on a white steed. Psalm 2 ends with a blessing, echoing Psalm 1-1, and links these two psalms together. Blessed are all those who put or who take refuge in him to make the Son the object of our faith, to flee to Him in times of trouble and trial, is to be blessed. That is the way of happiness. Two final points. First of all, you need to understand this psalm is evangelistic. It is addressed to the nations. It beats with a missionary heart. It is the nations who are in revolt against Christ. It is the nations, however, who are promised to Him. Verse 8. It is the nations who are called to him, verse 10. And so Psalm 2 directs the nations to come to the Son, warns them of the judgment to come, and promises the nations blessing if they will worship him. Thus this psalm is for those who make this submission. It's for the nations, it's for the Jews, for the Gentiles who submit to God's Son and King. And in this psalm we learn how to serve the Lord with fear, 
with rejoicing, with trembling, and with kissing the Son. Finally, while we cannot accept responsibility for the rebellion of the nations, we can accept and need to accept responsibility for our own rebellion, our own illusions of freedom, our own quest for material security, our own chafing against the Lord's sovereign will. And as we become aware of those things, we need to confess them. Psalm 2, as I said, is evangelistic. It's, it's structured as an invitation from God. You see, God defines the problem. We're in revolt. We're in rebellion. He offers the solution, His Son. He gives a warning of judgment to come and calls us to surrender to Him in worship. You see, the road to the Father's house is already marked. The door is open, and Christ is standing in the door. It's now time for people to come, greet Him, bow before Him, and kiss the Son. Father God in heaven, I thank You for this missionary psalm, this royal psalm, this psalm filled with prophecy and yet messianic, pointing us to your Son. The Father answers the question as to why the nations are in rebellion, why people are in an uproar. And, and when we cut away all the issues and all the nonsense and all the what-ifs and should and woulds and all everything all together, when we get down to the brass tack of it, Lord, we discover that at the heart of rebellion is a heart that hates God. And Father, we even see it in our own lives. Anytime we rebel, anytime we sin, we thumb our nose at what you've told us to do, we are acting out of a heart that hates you. And so, Father, we need to repent of that. We need to forsake that. Father, we need to pray. We need to pray for our nation. We need to pray for our world. We need to pray for the people, the nations, the leaders. Because, Lord, they, they, they are at enmity with you. Father, we need to pray that they might come and see the door is open, the sun is standing there, and yet judgment is about to befall, lest they come and kiss the sun, lest they come and repent of their sin and put their faith in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And so, Father, for each of us, I pray that we too, Lord, have done business, that we've come to that door, that we've submitted ourselves to your Son as our Lord. And while we haven't physically kissed his feet, by our actions of obedience and submission, we have symbolically kissed his feet. We pray in your Son's precious name. Amen.